Welcome to the Yoga Addiction. If you're a yoga teacher or student who wants a deeper understanding of yoga with respect to science, health, and longevity, this podcast is for you. Every week, we'll dive deep into a topic to help you be a better yogi, teacher, and communicator. We want to give you a practical understanding of the current science related to yoga and help you create quality, safe, and inspired classes, whether they are for yourself at home or for your students. I'm Natalie Sanger. And I'm Sandy Hewitt. We look forward to you taking part in our conversations. All right. Okay. Hi, guys. Hey, Sandy. How's it going? Uh, It's pretty good. How are you? I'm good. Yeah, I don't know. Pretty normal day. I don't know. I don't think I have anything like really exciting to say. Oh, I got my berries, but I told you briefly. I went berry picking and you were making fun of me. Yeah. Yeah. Because you thought that was like hunter gatherer, but it's, it's really all laid out for you. Well, I mean, my friend came with two kids. She has a four month old and a three year, three and a half year old. So that was work. And my friend, like, it was actually really beautiful. At one point, my friend, like, sat down between the rows of blueberries was breastfeeding her newborn Aww. and it was really sweet but then she stood up and stepped on a bee <laughs> oh, stung by a oh bee. Like barefoot yeah barefoot Ouch. and she had never been stung before so she was just like oh my god and i was like yeah they really suck like people don't want to get stung by bees for this reason. <laughs> <laughs> keep your shoes on man oh and apparently <laughs> she is like mama mildly allergic um she just even if she gets bit by a mosquito or any bug like she kind of swells up so it like it took a really long time i was with her for several hours and by the time i went home like last night she texted me she's like yeah my foot's massive (laughs) oh god oh poor thing but yeah so yeah it was like it was hard there was it wasn't just easy cruising i i don't know it was it was really stung by a bee No, I picked like. I don't know how much hard. Sh- I mean, I know it's not easy with like two kids, but it was relatively easy. The bushes were Thank huge, you. and <laughs> I picked like ten pounds in an hour. So that no, was good. Okay, we have a yeah. guest on the show today that we are totally ignoring. Hi, hi. <laughs> how are you how was your week i'm good i've had a relatively chill week um which has been lovely i've kind of needed the downtime um so i've been diving into this really interesting book which interestingly enough is about the brain and we're kind of talking about that today so it was a very um lovely kind of synchronicity situation happening hey mm. sandy who yeah. who are we talking to I don't know who we're talking to. Who are you? <laughs> <laughs> so guys, this is Aisha. She's a, a friend. Um, I met her on a Tiffany Crookshank yoga medicine training, which we meet so many great people with. Um, and I think the first one I did with Aisha was, um, Thailand. Yeah. I think we met in Thailand. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And that was the, we did like the spine two years ago. Mm-hmm. And yeah. then we did the shoulder together this year again in Thailand, right? Yes. Perfect. Yeah. So she was like a, it's so nice to see like the familiar faces when you go to these things. Cause you really don't know who's going to be there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> like you kind of know, but you don't really know. Yeah, you're <laughs> like, you're going not sure. wondering. There's always like, who am I going to run into yeah. this time? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then sometimes there's like a, like a familiar face. Like, Oh, I know you. Like, how are you? And it's so nice to see you. And like, it's always and- like a lovely family reunion at these trainings, which I love. 
Yeah, yeah. It's it's a really nice it's a, a really nice community for yeah. sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, uh, Nat doesn't know her. I well, I haven't met you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> kind of crazy. Where do you where do you, where do you live right now? So I live in, I'm from Bahrain. I was born and raised here. It's a tiny island in the Arab world um, that's about an hour's flight away from Dubai. Um, It's such a tiny island, you can't even see it on the world map. Like, that's how low-key we are. Um, What? That's crazy. (laughs) And it's like the opposite weather of what you guys have in Canada. So today it was like 45 degrees Celsius, which is insane. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Jeez. Um, yeah, I haven't done any trainings over in well for yoga medicine in any parts of Asia or Europe. Like I've all been North America or Central America. Oh, so like some okay. people just don't cross the pond that often. So yeah, some mm-hmm. people I won't see. There was like another girl, I think maybe on one of the on the yoga medicine page or something, or maybe uh the group chats for a training that I'm doing is like, oh I've this is my tenth training and I like did not recognize her her name, which I thought was really weird because I've done I think seven. Maybe this might be my eighth or something like that that I'm doing this summer. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's really weird. You can see people several times or you can not not see any like not come yeah. across yeah. cross paths with someone. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, she does them in such like disparate locations. There's so many locations. So yeah, if you only mm-hmm. go to the ones that are sort of close to you, then yeah, you you, you won't go to like see all these other, all these other peeps. Yeah. <laughs> so when Sandy said she wanted to talk to you, I was really stoked because she said your thing is, or your interests are kind of like neuroplasticity and mm-hmm. was that it? Oh, yeah, that, like, brain stuff. I've wanted to look more into neuroplasticity since I started learning about yoga. Like that always was something so interesting to me. And I know I'm constantly working with it, but just to know like in depth more about it. And I have all these books and they kind of intimidate me because <laughs> I <laughs> yeah. can't crack them. <laughs> it's yeah. just like, it can be really intense learning about that stuff. But yeah, I don't know. Like start wherever you want to, I guess, with that subject or. Yeah, your sure. Background. All right. Maybe. So, yeah, maybe a little uh, bit about your background. Sure. So, um, I the way I like to describe what I do is I teach well-being. Um, I used to call it yoga, but then felt like I've branched out beyond just yoga. So, obviously, I do teach yoga, and I love and appreciate the practice. Um, but I found that mixing and bringing together different modalities can really be such a powerful tool to create even more transformation um, in the lives of our students. And so um, just last year, I uh, took a training to become licensed as a psycho and hypnotherapist. Um, and I just completed my training and, and received my exam results um, this week, which has been really exciting. So I'm officially ready to go as a psychotherapist and hypnotherapist now um I think I was always very awesome yeah very interested in what makes us human and this beautiful kind of uh complex experience of of having a body and a mind and and these emotions that we experience as we go through life and how all of that comes together um and neuroplasticity was one of the first concepts that like when I learned it I was like yeah that's where I want to go and I I think of my teaching in my yoga classes as a form of um 
not just a moving meditation, but also a movement therapy kind of experience. And I really draw on neuroplasticity to, um, to, to facilitate that. And it's exactly what you said, Nat. I think we do this all the time as yoga teachers. Um, but the great thing about learning about neuroplasticity is we can become that much more intentional about it. And it just, if anything, just kind of intensifies the power and the potency of the practice. A hundred percent. Yeah. Um, yeah, you get to like anything that you learn more about, you can teach more effectively and mm -hmm. intentionally. So what is that look like then in a practice yeah so um just to break down the definition before we dive into that um in case any of anyone listening is unfamiliar with the term neuroplasticity is basically the idea that the brain changes and adapts according to life experiences according to where we direct our attention and also according to our environment um just up to a few decades ago a lot of people believed it was just a common belief that um, our brains grow when we're children and then there's a point where they stop growing and you kind of just can't go beyond that. I remember when we were in school, um, one of my best friends would always freak out if like, you know, she hit her head somewhere. She'd be like, oh, my God, my brain cells died and they can never regenerate. Oh, no. Um, and, <laughs> and we never I mean, I always believed that because she said it like it was a fact and no one ever said otherwise <laughs> and that was just yeah that was just what we thought was common knowledge at the time um but what we've been learning over the past couple of decades and what neuroscientists have been exploring and finding um especially by studying the brains of meditating monks but also now applying it to um everyday people really that the brain is constantly shifting and evolving and adapting. Um, and this isn't just like an exceptional phenomenon that happens. This is actually kind of the rule um, and, and the standard way things go for our brain. So just like we are, you know, living dynamic um, beings or creatures, our brain is also a dynamic part of who we are. And it's always changing and adapting and evolving, which is extremely exciting to, if you think about it, because that means that we're never really stuck wherever we are, whatever um, direction life takes us to. There's always a way to adapt should we choose to do so. Um, so, yeah, that's really interesting. But I think, is there a way you can like, do you have like an example? Like when your friend was like, oh, yeah, I hit my head and I lost my brain cells. Yeah. It's like, oh, there goes my ability to add two yeah. plus two. Um, yeah. But like, that's not true, right? right? So like, how does neuroplasticity happen with like what we think of as in terms of like the usefulness of our brains? You know yeah. What I mean? If that makes yeah. sense. So, <laughs> Practical yeah. usage. So yeah. it would take a really severe trauma to impair the brain to the point where it can't do normal functions like two plus two, you know, it's not like the, mm -hmm. the small things of hitting our, our, our head and losing a couple of brain cells. Um, the way if we're going to get a bit like geeky about it for a minute here, the way it kind of works with neuroplasticity is we've got neurons in our brain. And so they're the cells um, that conduct nerve impulses within the brain. And these neurons are connected to each other through connections called synapses. Um, and neuroplasticity basically uh, has shown uh, through brain scans that 
the brain can produce new neurons, but it can also create new connections between neurons. And we see this a lot with people who like, you hear about people who have, um, you know, an accident and one of their functions becomes impaired, but then they slowly learn to regenerate and rediscover that function. And so what their brain is doing is it's rebuilding neural connections um, that may have been broken, so to speak. And, and, Right. An example that I like to use is like Google Maps and roads. Um, so if you were to think of like uh, Google Maps when it was a new technology, we would, any you were you, to plug in like a location, like I want to go to this place. It would have normally given you like one to two routes maximum, not a very accurate um, prediction of how long it would take for you to get there. And sometimes you would find that there's something in the GPS that wasn't updated and one of those routes doesn't work. Um, but then the more people started using Google Maps and the more people started driving through those roads for Google Maps to be able to be like, okay, it takes this person this many minutes and that person this many minutes. And so it, it, it kind of became able to calculate timings more accurately and also to generate new routes. Um, like there were times when I drove through Google Maps and I knew that there was an additional route that it didn't suggest to me. And after taking it, the next time I used Google Maps, that route was there. And so like Google Maps, the brain takes feedback from our experiences to create these new pathways and these new routes to get things done. Um, I don't know. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Is that clear enough? Or should I elaborate more on that? Yeah, no, I think that was, that was great. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. Um, so I guess this calls to mind the whole, um, and like yoga has its own terms for it, that whole, like, uh, you know, like the yoga sutras, yoga, chitta, mm -hmm. vritti, narodaha, the whole thing, like yoga is the stilling of the patterning of the mind. Um, and this whole idea that we can be patterned in our minds. Um, like for example, the one I always think of is like when you, um, are sort of like, uh, in a fight with someone like in a verbal fight and they say something that just like gets you and then you like knee-jerk react by like insulting them or like mm -hmm. you know pushing a button that you know is there and you know like and you you do it like often enough where it's like yeah i know i know the ride i'm gonna the rise i'm gonna get out of them so that's that's you know that's why i do it mm -hmm. um or like you just yeah like a certain way that we we react to a situation that is almost like unconscious um that's being sort of patterned within our um behaviors and our emotions um, which is all in the brain right mm -hmm. uh so how does neuroplasticity apply when it comes to this whole breaking of that cycle and how do we do it and how do i get better at it and yeah i don't want to fight with mm -hmm. people <laughs> i love i love that you said patterning because really that's what it boils down to um and what neuroscientists have been finding more than anything is that repetition is key. And we hear this a lot in yoga. We say this to our students all the time. It's about the repetition, you know, and like even when a student is learning to meditate and they're like, I can't meditate for five minutes. Um, we always tell them just do one minute and just do, you know, maybe one minute in the morning, one minute in the middle of your day, and then one minute at the end of your day. Um, and I was just listening to a podcast the other day with um, Richard Davidson, who's incredible, by the way, I would highly recommend looking for any podcast interviews he does because he's absolutely phenomenal um and he does a lot of the research around neuroplasticity and um he was talking about the fact that just doing a few seconds of mindful pauses um 
at a time repeated throughout the day is way more effective than doing longer durations without the consistency. So repatterning, oh. yeah, which I thought was really powerful because I think... That's really cool. Yeah, and students can find med meditation really intimidating when they feel like, when they think they need to be doing it for longer durations, when the reality is all you need to do is have a split second access to that state. And the more you repeat that, the more familiar you become with that state and the more easy it becomes for you to, to go back there. It's just about, um, and again, this goes back to yoga philosophy. I believe the term is samskaras, the grooves of the mind. You're just deepening, deepening that groove, um, Right. And your familiarity with that state. Right, right. And and just to answer your question about our, our automatic kind of reactions, which which happens it's it's a very, you know, natural part of our our um our human tendencies. And what um having a contemplative practice like yoga or meditation can do, um although we can find this in other kind of practices as well. But since we're talking about yoga and meditation today, what we can, a big thing that we can really learn out of yoga is to pause between stimulus and response. Um, and you can find this in a yoga practice in many settings. Like even if you're in a warrior two and the teacher has been blabbering for like an entire minute and you're like, just shut up and get me out of the pose. Um, and there's a part, there's, a, there's this like reactive force inside of you where you're like, ah, but you kind of have to bear with it for a second. And then, and then the teacher reminds you, you know, what happens if I check in with my breath? Um, can you bring your attention to your toes? Are you gripping your mat with your toes? Can you relax your toes? And what that does, is it, it reminds the brain that I don't need to take every kind of passing thought as fact and I don't need to immediately react to it I can pause for a split second before I respond and the more we train that tendency the more we can increase that space and respond from a more I guess, balanced place as opposed to just responding according to our natural condition triggers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's awesome. So it's overall kind of more of an awareness practice than um, like a relaxation practice or something like that. Mm. It's more awareness to like, again, you said like the stimulus and the reaction Type thing. I think in this right? kind of situation, when it comes to conflict and confrontation, I would definitely think that the awareness and directing our attention is um, is is kind of the more um, potent way to go about it. Um, but I love that you brought up mm -hmm. relaxation because I think that this is another place where we can kind of access the power of neuroplasticity. So, and and we see this with or I. I would say I see this with, with new students a lot where they come in and the thought of closing their eyes and relaxing sounds and feels really uncomfortable. But once they come mm -hmm. to like two to three classes and notice how good it feels to be in that state, it's a lot easier for them to drop into it. There is just that familiarity with that state that kind of makes it easier to go back there. And, and one thing we know about neuroplasticity and the brain is that the brain responds that much faster when there is like a reward system effect going on. So when you do something and it feels good, that actually um, amplifies the power and the potential of neuroplasticity because you know there's a reward on the other end of that. 
Yeah. When when you say reward, it makes me think of like training my dog. Like she'll only sit and roll over and, you know, play dead if there's that reward at the end. And, mm-hmm. and when there is, she does it so much faster. She does it so much better. Um, so in a way, is this sort of like teaching yoga in the perspective, from the perspective of neuroplasticity, are we trying to train in newness or just train in the openness or like i guess what's the what's the end goal here with with this perspective of neuroplasticity and this ability to um shift the way our minds work oh that's such a great question um <laughs> i love it you got me so excited as you were asking um so <laughs> what the beauty about neuroplasticity is you can use it in any way you would like and so where it becomes really uh, exciting and and inspiring for us as teachers is that we can tap into this quality of our brains um, to deliver whatever it is that we want to convey through our teaching so one one thing that I think is really important for us to um, continue to reflect on from time to time is getting clear on what we want to deliver through our teaching um, Mm-hmm. because really the possibilities are infinite. You know, like you said, we can be teaching openness um, and equanimity. We could teach compassion. Um, you know, loving kindness meditation is one of the ways we could do that. Um, we could teach social engagement. Um, one thing we know now through the polyvagal theory, um, which which is a whole other kind of rabbit hole. So I'm not going to dive too deep into that, but just know, we know now that to regulate the nervous system and to have that balance between the stress response and the relaxation response, connecting to the social engagement system, which is such an integral part of our being as, as social creatures, can really, really, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It can really expand the state of our well-being and so you can train Mm -hmm. social engagement in a classroom setting I love to do this just because I love for my classes to be very light-hearted and 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 goofy and like I make an absolute uh, fool out of myself around my students not intentionally (laughs) but just because I'm I'm naturally clumsy um but I think that's a way to then instill into the classroom environment that feeling of you can be whoever you are you can do whatever you need to do and be completely authentic in how you present yourself in this environment and you're more than welcome to show up exactly as who you are and that trains the parts of the brain that goes oh maybe I can actually embrace all these aspects of myself outside of the yoga classroom as well since they're welcomed in this room and so one thing we we do a lot of in my classes is sometimes I I do these like part uh, kind of partner work games or activities um and one of those that I really love is just to have um partners like put place a block between their hands so say if Nat and Sandy you guys were partnered together you'd grab one block and place it between say Nat's right hand and Sandy's either right or left hand and then I would encourage them to just challenge each other and move and explore while keeping that connection of the block Um, and I encourage them to do it non-verbally as well so that really trains um the more intuitive part of our social connection with the people around us and the results that come out of that is beautiful because when they start usually they're really uncomfortable with the feeling of uh what are we supposed to do because a i give them no instructions i'm like 
just do your thing. <laughs> and then we're, tr- so that, um, and I'm going to talk about that in a second as well, because I'm really big on breaking out of doing yoga asana in a form where it can become a, like a mindless routine and, and actually doing it from mm. a place of more intention. Um, so we're training that, that kind of quality of independent thinking of what do I want to, an independent feeling as well. What do I feel like I want to do and move with my body? And then there's that nonverbal social engagement communication situation that's happening between the partners. And there's also the curious, playful, explorative aspect of, um, you know, can I get down on one knee and then roll on the floor? And can my partner walk around me to keep the block? And, and a lot of laughter ensues, which I love because then we're incorporating the idea of we can have a sense of humor about things, even when they get challenging or outside of our comfort zone. Um, and what I find is that once we do that activity and then step back onto our mats, everybody breathes like seven times more deeply than they did before the activity. And it's because engaging mm-hmm. socially is so ingrained in our nature that when we allow that to happen in a safe, non-judgmental environment, people just thrive and, and you can see that reflected in their breathing. That's so awesome. I love that so much. I want to take your yoga class so bad. Yes, well, your wellness come. class. <laughs> <laughs> you're kind of far <laughs> just a little bit I love that activity though that example of the activity is so great because I know I've been in states when I've gone into yoga class and I do like to go to a public class just to be like in community with people um, in the presence of people and breathing together but I'm not necessarily in a state where I want to talk to anybody yeah like at the end of a work day or you're just going through some stressful stuff mm-hmm. and I've had teachers and with, with the best of intentions of course say you know introduce yourself to your neighbor and tell them something about your day like you could be only thinking about the fact that like I don't know like your uncle died mm-hmm. or something like some heavy yeah. shit and you're just like you then you kind of fake it and you're just like yeah, yeah Natalie and like I do yoga mm-hmm. I don't know like right so you can still like in your example have that connection maintain and create that connection non-verbally I think is so powerful mm-hmm. I love I absolutely love that example yeah I'll definitely use that I I don't know how I'd be scared to bring that into my group classes no like when it's everyone's so used to just eyes on you know this imaginary object in front of them or eyes closed and this inward journey which is is important but like yeah I, I totally agree with that social aspect as well I just I would hesitate I'm scared I would I'm, I don't know how it would be received in a, but think about doing it yourself and like how it would make you feel like you so like she's explaining it, yeah. right? You'd like giggle and have that connection again. You don't have to say anything to anybody. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. I'm going to do it. I'm going to teach do it. it. Yeah, yeah. Teach it from that place, knowing that <laughs> you, you, what your experience is. And that's like, I mean, that's what we do as teachers. There's that's always true. like weird things that we bring in. We know someone will benefit mm-hmm. that's true and I think yeah. also like yeah. um when I started doing these like playful experiments I would sometimes give people the option to opt out so I'd be you know I'd be like if you don't want to mm-hmm. do this if you just don't feel like you want to interact with someone today um and I'd give them an option that kind of engages a similar part of the brain without them having to do the partner work um the reason I just do it more comfortably now is I think my students are used to I always joke about like um 
um, like you guys are used to me doing weird shit in class and they just laugh about it, you know? And I think um, because they're used to those playful experiments, now I'm a bit less hesitant about introducing them. Um, mm -hmm, yeah. And also one thing that you can do is you can say, we're going to try something a bit different today. And, um, you know, if it's not like, maybe not saying if it's not something you're going to like, but just, just preface that, you know, this is not something that's necessarily going to happen every time, but we're just trying something different and testing it out. And I'd love to know how you guys right. feel about it after class. And then depending on their feedback, you can kind of take it from there. Right, right. Yeah, no, I love that. Yeah, I think that's, that's the way to do it in a, uh, in a, like a more typical studio, which is what I teach at, you know, like the more regular kind of physical yoga practice so mm -hmm. yeah but that's so great I love it I love all the ideas yeah yeah and I don't know we mentioned something about asana that I kind of wanted to touch back on because some, this is something that I feel um, really passionate about I had about two years ago I was left with um, two chronic injuries a shoulder injury and a hip injury um, that actually that ended up actually being a result of yoga alignment. Um, like there were definitely times in my yoga practice where, you know, I obviously did something without being too mindful and injured myself. I've done that many times and I always take full responsibility for it when I do that. But there, this was a time where I had like not pushed my body in any way. And I knew that I was working at a level that I could handle. And all I could think of was, I, like I'm playing by the rules. What's going on here? I was really confused. Um, and what I found was the thing about yoga alignments is that even though it is true that this is a generally speaking, um, I guess a safer container for movement to start with, there comes a time when you've been doing the practice for so long, you demo so much when you're teaching that even that movement, which in and of itself is a healthy movement, becomes a form of repetitive motion. And if we don't introduce diversity into our movement practice, that can create imbalances within the body, even though we're practicing according to yoga alignments. The other thing it does, and I absolutely love yoga alignments. I think there's a time and place for it, um, especially if it happens to be a day where you're actually training that sense of like, you know, just focus on the alignments and focus on your breath and keep moving, which is lovely sometimes. Um, but I also think it's really important to for us as teachers to remember that including diversity can help our students thrive in many more ways. And so if we keep practicing the same poses with the exact same alignments every time, it becomes really easy to, um, to be practicing from a place of autopilot. Um, and mm -hmm. I like... Again, there are days when we want to go on autopilot, and I think that's totally fair enough. And I think that that's valid and that can be helpful. But if we're doing it every time, we're losing out on the power um, and the potency of being able to connect to a more intuitive side of the practice of, you know what, maybe I want to turn my hands out a bit more in down dog today, or maybe today I want to bend my knees, or maybe, um, you know, maybe I want to change the position or the the heights of my femur bones or my thighs in warrior two. Um, and if we keep practicing the poses like they're containers for us to fit into, then we lose out on the gift of the place where yoga connects us to our intuition. And I think that that's a really important place to keep going back to. Yeah. I think that's really important. Um, 
what you just said there. Sandy and I, well, we've been doing like these pose breakdowns the last couple episodes. So I think the episode's going to come out before this is we're breaking down Warrior 3. And we always, we just like start talking about, just specifically when we're talking about alignment and poses, like how different every single body mm-hmm. is. And you're totally right. Like you can't just teach uh, a posture with the, the certain alignment cues, like fitting it in a certain container, like you said, um, just depending on the length of your bones and right. what you've been doing all day. Everyone has such a different experience and it comes down to like teachers needing more anatomy training, mm-hmm. yes. I think, than is offered in the 200. Yeah. I mean, there's always so much you can do in 200, just knowing the body and um, yeah, there's so many other places you can teach from like alignment based or anatomy based is just one thing and offering your students more freedom is so empowering. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just like, yeah, like when you start, you know, remember when you started doing yoga, like how hard it was, like everything was for, and you're building probably so many like synapses yeah, really? from whatever perspective to like talking about neuroplasticity, like your body is like, what the hell is going on? And then it does become very repetitive and um, something that, it's like coming, coming home to, it's a totally different experience. Mm So I love that, um, conversation just about, yeah, keeping things diverse and moving in different Mm -hmm. ways. And and that's just with with respect to the movement part of, of yoga, the physical part, um, speaking to like intention and all those deeper layers is, um, something else you can, where you can go in the practice and really affect how your students are experiencing Mm -hmm. things. Yeah. So I just wanted to like pull out, um, so from what you just said there about, sorry, not, not you, Nat, but what I just said, mm-hmm. what our guest said <laughs> about, mm-hmm. um, like the whole, uh, diversity in the practice. Um, so yeah, there's that, like it, it does help with that avoidance of repetitive motion strain. Um, but the other thing is like with the social aspect that you're trying to pull in is that that social aspect literally like throws all of the um, autopilotingness of yoga totally out the window. Like you can't, if you are present with another person, you almost can't autopilot when you're really present with someone else because it, every moment is this like watchfulness of what are they going to say? What are they going to do? How are they going to react? Um, and then your response to it is just absolutely like, it's got to be different, right. Than what you're used to. And if you fall into those patterns where you're just always repeating the same thing, asking the same questions, answering the same questions, um, that's that whole, like, yeah, we're just, we're just a huge compilation of human patterning rather than this, wonderful ability of the brain to change react pivot um be creative to integrate information um and and it does yeah like the social aspect is huge and okay before i I, so that was a huge thing but the other thing i wanted to say as i was listening to um us all just like you know expound on the benefits of creativity um I think this would be really, really hard for some people. I think this would be like such a challenge for those people who love the rigor and structure and like, yes, the the gratification of I'm doing it right and I know I'm doing it right Mm -hmm. and I'm I'm nailing this, you know? Like, so how do you deal? Because you must get people that are like that. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Before I get to that, I also want to, you said something which is spot on. Um, The social aspect really trains presence. And so, again, if we're just going back to the idea of neuroplasticity, 
um, the social engagement trains presence even more. And what we know about presence is that it enables us to come off of our autopilot. There's this background narrative going on in our minds. And when we're able to be present, whether it's on our mat on our own or doing some kind of partner experience in a classroom setting, um, it's, it starts to tone down that automatic narrative in the back of our head. And this is where a lot of the transformational qualities of yoga happen, because we start to understand in these moments of being completely in our bodies and completely with the person in front of us, that we are not the narrative that's happening in our head. We are so much more than that. And that creates um, the, the breeding ground for, for change and growth and transformation. Um, so I just wanted to throw that in there. But then to answer your question about um, people's <laughs> discomfort with novelty, uh, I think it helps to introduce it in small doses. Um, so having a familiar structure and having enough things here and there for these people to feel like, these students to feel like, okay, I'm getting what I want there. I'm doing the post correctly. But then also very slowly and gradually challenging the concept of what does correct mean who decides what correct is um and it, it is really hard and sometimes students come up to me and we have this conversation um i found that student education goes a long way like when we actually talk to them about the why of what we're doing mm. um which takes reflection ahead of time and, and us knowing why we do what we do and so when we share that with our students they're that much more willing to to go with the flow. Um, I've definitely had experiences where I taught classes that were um, maybe a bit too creative for people who like the idea of right and wrong. Um, and it was a process <laughs> of like learning to tiptoe around that fine, fine balance of, of giving everyone in the room what they need. Because a lot of people were like, yeah, this is amazing. But then there were always, there were always these like two or three people who were like, um, what? What, what what are what are we doing here <laughs> and um and i like to explain to them that the brain thrives on novelty like that's a big aspect of neuroplasticity as well is the more we are able to simulate the brain in new and different ways the more it continues to grow and adapt as we age and um and i find that when you tell students that they're going to continue to be adaptable, mentally adaptable as they age. They're a lot less resistant to the idea of, okay, maybe, you know, exploring things. Um, so because everyone wants to maintain um, brain function as we grow older. And, and I think um, mm. we know that dementia has been on the rise, especially with, with modern technology and our lifestyles. Like there's such a lack of presence that facilitates dementia and one thing we do when we train presence is we're creating, again, all of these synaptic connections in the brain that can enable it to continue to, to adapt to our lives. Um, we know from meditation research they, that um, experienced or people who've been meditating regularly, I think actually for as little as eight weeks, they, they saw changes in their brain scans and, and increased growth in areas of attention, memory, emotional regulation. Um, there were quite a few other areas that I can't remember off the top of my head. But just telling that to students and saying, you know what, we're going to do a slightly weird experiment for a bit, but then we're going to go back to our, our regular practice. And so if you, know, if you introduce mm -hmm. five minutes of novelty in a 
60, 75, 90 minute class, most people are willing to to bear with that, especially when we explain the benefits and the why behind it. Mm. Yeah, I love that. I want to I pull on a few things, um, Sandy, that you mentioned, like training presence within students who want like a more active, vigorous, rigorous yoga asana practice. And I think that like you, like Aisha, you were just saying like, yeah, you still can have novelty in those classes. Like even think within a... I don't know, like a power vinyasa classes and more, more teachers are doing this. And I think this is the why, like teachers are recognizing the, that kind of over patterning of certain poses over and over again. So we can structure our classes in a way where you create a vinyasa of poses linked together that really are not usually linked mm-hmm. together in transitions that are not normally exactly. taken. Yeah. Absolutely. So that might, yeah. and you can still like have them sweat and breathe yeah. and, physically work while being really present to okay how am I getting in and out of this so I'm not going like chaturanga up dog I'm going chaturanga back to plank or like you can reverse things and you can do things in different in different orders to keep them like on it listening mm-hmm. um and then I had a question kind of tying on to that like I I choose to teach most the majority of my classes um verbally and I will demo less if I'm with a bunch of beginners then I'm going to demo a little bit more um and my choice there is one because like what you spoke to repetition in the body like repetitive Mm -hmm. injury just no matter what movement you're doing if you're doing it too much um you can have problems there and injury arise so within my my own body and then I have the idea in my head and I don't know if it's correct that when you when you teach verbally and you're not showing um, that people have to pay more attention. And I, I I do know that some people just don't learn as well um, with auditory cues. Um, They do need to see, like, I I know, I know people learn differently, but I, I do have friends that learn better visually and they've kind of, they have trained themselves to learn better from verbal cues, especially in a yoga Mm -hmm. class. So I kind of, push people a little bit that way to be extremely present to what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. And I, yeah, I don't know from your perspective, if, if you, if you've um, learned about the benefits of like visual versus verbal. Mm. I think that's great. Too. I love everything you just said. Um, and, and I agree. I've also been demoing a lot less, um, especially when I have regular students in the room um, and you're spot on about it's really getting them to completely pay attention and be present with what you're saying as you teach. Um, With visual and auditory learning, we know that, you know, different people have like different learning, like preferred learning modalities. So some people are more visual, some people are more auditory, some people are more kinesthetic. So they learn through feeling and connecting and, and, and with those people really even guiding them through cues of like, um, you know, like uh, trying to think of a good cue here, like maybe saying like they'd be in a pose and saying something along the lines of notice the textures within your body, even as you're in this pose. And again, this can be in like a power vinyasa class. Like it doesn't have to be uh, a slow and, you know, the more kind of expected form of a mindful practice. It can be vigorous. It can be a power vinyasa. And you can be there in that pose, in that standing pose, say, for a split second and say, just notice the textures inside of your body as you move in and out of the poses. Um, And that can, 
A, for kinesthetic learners, it's an exciting thing to connect to. But for people who aren't naturally kinesthetic learners, that starts to create a, a potential for a new um, synaptic kind of uh, firing to occur in the brain. So again, if we're going back to the idea of neuroplasticity, you're training everyone to be more adaptable to these different forms of learning. Um, I recommend mixing all of those in. This is something we learned um, as psychotherapists and working with clients is to mix all of the different um, approaches to teaching. So visual, auditory, um, kinesthetic, um, and, and really create a more integrated, especially in a group setting, a more integrated approach to teaching so that the visual students can have a bit of what's comfortable to them, but they can also experience things that challenge them. And the same goes with the other types of students. Um, but I think it's absolutely fantastic to challenge them in that way and have them learn to pay attention and to listen to, to the cueing. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's awesome. So I, I just have a question about, um, you did mention dementia before. I was just wondering, are there any like studies that show the benefits of yoga practice, not necessarily a like a neuroplasticity designed um, uh, yoga practice, but just like a plain old yoga practice, whatever it is um, to help those issues. Um, mm. Or are, are there like absolutely no um, maybe brain benefits? I, well, I don't know. I'm yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. That was a yeah, very absolutely. poorly worded question. No, that, I'm sorry. That makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> um, no. So I'm not aware of any yoga studies. I'm sure there have been some. Um, I just, I'm not familiar with them, but I am familiar with studies around meditation and its its benefits in working with dementia. Um, and this was a point I kind of also wanted to bring up is I think that the foundation of, of and when I don't use the word meditation a lot with my students, just because I find that some people are intimidated by it. Um, and there's still the misconception of, oh, we need to clear the mind. So sometimes I, I call it like an experiment of presence or an experiment of awareness or an experiment of curiosity. But really, the essence of that is a mindfulness practice. And and we um, research has shown, I think this was Herbert Benson from Harvard Medical School, if I remember correctly, who um, who found that there are three major components that trigger the relaxation response. Um, and these components are having an objective focus, having a non-judgmental attitude towards that objective focus, and repeating that over time. And we talked about the benefits of repetition earlier. Um, and so when these three components come together, and the lovely thing is you can get creative with how you can bring them together. But I always love um, the basic mindfulness practice of, I think it's, I just think the simple things are the most powerful of just noticing the breath, you know, and noticing what it feels like to be in your body and continuing to bring your attention back. And what they found with mindfulness meditation is when it's done regularly, again, I think over as little as a period of eight weeks, there are actual physical changes in the gray matter of the brain, which is basically, which basically indicates growth in these areas um, relating to memory and attention. And so when we go back to memory, I think this is where a lot of it, um, relates to dementia. So there is some promise there. Um, I personally, from a psychotherapy point of view, also find that dementia can sometimes be related to unresolved emotional trauma. Um, so there are more elements mm. to it than just, you know, just do yoga or just meditate. But I think that these are really amazing, really um, beautiful tools to use to complement 
our mental, emotional, physical well-being. That's so crazy. Um, so just a quick follow-up about that study. Do you know if there was like a time limit to it? Like was it the younger people who had more natural ability to grow gray matter or um, does it just not matter, like depending on your age? Mm. I don't remember the details of that particular study. I do know that we, when we are younger, there is more of that, like you said, there is more of that capacity to learn and for the brain to, to, the brain to develop even um even faster um but there is a lot of research right. in neuroplasticity that shows that 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 process can continue to um you know throughout the lifespan um there is a study that's being done i think this was also richard davidson um he's collaborating with the dalai lama on this and i don't know what the results of the study um are yet if they're if they've actually gotten to the end of the study but i have heard him talk about the fact that they're um they're working on a project where they're actually tracking the possibility of neuroplasticity continuing to exist even after, like after death. Um, and they, this was a specific study. What? Yeah, I know it's, it's, it's re- very out there, but um, he's a, I trust him because he is a neuroscientist and he's very much grounded in, um, in fact and research. And he, um, he said that they, when I heard the interview, he was talking and he said that they hadn't gotten to like a conclusion yet. But what they did was they studied the brains of, um, I think these were like Olympic meditators, like monks who meditate all day. And they found that there's, <laughs> yeah. there is some kind of brain activity and adaptability that seems to continue beyond life. Again, I think this is a bit out there and I don't know how much... Um, clarity we have on it just yet but i just thought it was interesting to mention that there there's just so much more to continue to explore um in that field yeah that is so cool yeah (laughs) oh my god um do you have any books like specific books or yeah i would say like a book because audible is nice um that you'd recommend to yoga teachers like specific it doesn't have to be like yoga and neuroplasticity but like something that uh a yoga teacher would find useful as a reference. Mm. Um, just, I don't book, know if you had anything like off the top of your head. Yeah, like your a, a book I have on my shelf that I haven't gotten uh, gotten around to to finishing. I think I read like just one chapter, but it blew my mind. Um, was is called the brain that changes itself. I think the author is called Norman Deutsch, something along those lines. I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly. Yes. Um, uh yeah that's the only book I can think of off the top of my head that talks speaks directly to neuroplasticity um another book that I really like this isn't so much of a um scientific book it's more of like a lighter read but there's a book called um Into the Magic Shop by James Doty and he is a neurosurgeon who um had a relatively traumatic childhood and he met um this woman who worked at a local magic shop and she basically taught him how to meditate and um he talks it's a so it's a very anecdotal way of talking about neuroplasticity he doesn't really get deep into the science but it's a lovely light read that that just shows how you know the quality of our life can really be transformed by these simple things that literally change how our brain um functions basically 
Okay, sweet. Yeah, I think I've read the brain or I've listened to it on Audible, the brain that changes itself. And then he has also the brain's way of healing. Oh, nice. Which I don't know. I have it in my library. I'm looking at my Audible list. I'm like, I have it in there. Did I listen to it? I don't know. Sometimes I listen to it and then I take it off my library and I can't tell if I've read it. (laughs) I remember like, like, Nat, you've definitely, yeah, you've definitely recommended to me the brain that changes itself. And I listened to one chapter and then I forgot about it, but I should go back and (laughs) Yeah, yeah. it was really good. Yeah, yeah, it's really good. Yeah. So we'll link those up so people can check that out there. I think there are some awesome books out there. Um, But yeah, they are like, kind of literally mind blowing. Mm. And and (laughs) they talk about like all these different ways that people like... (laughs) It's sorry. That's just true. a really good no like, pun joke. intended there. You know, I know. <laughs> oh, so no good. <laughs> but yeah, like so many different therapies, like all sorts of stuff that's used to change, like literally change your brain. Mm. It's so cool. Yeah, I love it. I love mm. that you said that as um, well. I recently lived. Oh, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Go on. Um, yeah, I love. I love that you said that, Nat, because um, uh, what. This is a thing that, sorry, I froze for a second. Um, so what you said about different modalities being really powerful because more, what science is finding more and more and what research is finding with time is that it's not really the modality that creates the healing, but more of the therapeutic relationship that facilitates the healing and creates a safe environment that allows the natural healing state within us to unfold. Um, and I, I love that you said that because it, I think it's so important for us as yoga teachers to remember that, you know, we can talk about all these techniques and we can explore all these different styles and, and we can teach people to meditate and we can share philosophy and we can teach poses, but really the most powerful thing we can offer is a safe environment for people to, to feel completely welcome to show up exactly as they are so that the healing process can unfold on its own. All we're doing is removing the obstacles that get in the way of healing and everything else is just a bonus really. That's cool. I think that must relate to some degree with, yeah, like obviously feeling safe in a, in say with respect to uh, a yoga class, if we're speaking that way, feeling safe, trusting your teacher, that's going to like reduce your cortisol Mm -hmm. overall and, and allow your body to start to regenerate, like heal in so many ways actually this kind of ties into the next episode that sandy and i are going to do which is about testosterone and like cortisol and testosterone stuff like that so yeah Mm -hmm. everything is so related yeah so related i love it yeah um i was just gonna say i was gonna ask about um so this thing that i heard on a podcast it was another guest um on someone's podcast and it was really good but he was talking about um so I think he was a psychotherapist and then one day he decided to start MRIing people's brains and he MRIed his own as well. Um, and I don't know if it came just from curiosity. I forget if it was curiosity or it was because he knew that certain brain regions, um, are, are like less active depending on certain traumatic events. Um, and so he did find that in certain, um, patients of his, that there'd be like patterns of, uh, brain activation um that were different from let's say a normal brain if if we can ever find what a normal brain is considering everyone has some sort of level of trauma and some sort of level of baggage um so yeah and then I just remember one story that was really funny because it's it has that emotional component to it where he would MRI um the brains of anyone who would seriously date his children (laughs) 
<laughs> just to see if they had any like of these like really severely um uh i think like down regulated areas um that might be a signal of something like a, a very deep trauma that maybe they suppressed or mm. um they just haven't like had the capacity to deal with yet whatever it is um so have you have you heard anything about that is that like something that's just like totally or is there like a a little bit something of truth to it is there i don't know um trauma definitely changes the brain what the way my psychotherapy teacher explained it to us is trauma actually shakes the brain so that the linkages be between the right and the left hemisphere become distorted to some extent. Um, and a lot of what happens in the, the therapeutic process is a reintegration of the brain. Um, because what happens with trauma is that we keep, and again, like you said, you know, we all carry some level of trauma. So whether it's what people call a small T trauma, you know, the day-to-day -day things that for some reason our, our mind decided to interpret as traumatic and beyond what we can handle, or whether it's, it's the more, um, I guess, commonly known forms of trauma. But regardless, what happens with trauma is that that incident is carried into the present moment as if it were happening right now. And this happens on a subconscious level a lot of the times. Um, so I lost my train of thought there for a second. Um, so yeah, so yeah. <laughs> integration of the two hemispheres. Yeah. Yeah. So, so there definitely are brain changes that, that occur um, in relation to trauma. But again, going back to this concept of neuroplasticity and what I love about it is it creates this feeling of like endless possibilities and hope and, and knowing mm. that people can come out from the depths of trauma and actually thrive. Um, I was just in a trauma conference in London uh, last month and hearing stories of people really rising out of the most difficult experiences you can possibly imagine is really inspiring. So yes, the brain changes when it, when trauma occurs, but then the brain can also heal and grow and adapt. And, and I think that these situations as unpleasant as they can be and as unfortunate and sometimes unfair as they can be um can actually kind of catapult the person into an even better life than they could have possibly imagined it, it can be a difficult process to go through the healing but it's definitely very possible um and just to add a quick little thing to that one thing that's really powerful that we train in yoga um is dropping out of our heads and into our bodies and this is especially powerful for trauma healing because trauma doesn't happen just on a kind of rational level it becomes stored in the body and so learning to feel safe in the sensations that come up in the body and this is a gradual process that we do is a really powerful way to work with that trauma and and unwind whatever kind of blockages occur when trauma happens no, I love that. That's so great. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for uh, clarifying. <laughs> sure. Um, I guess before we wrap up and end, I'm I'm gonna try to summarize just for our listeners. We kind of you kind of sprinkle this throughout yeah. the conversation today, but some some of your main techniques, if you're teaching a yoga or as you do like a wellness class, that's that has the intention of of like that is in, kind of modeled around neuroplasticity essentially. Um, and you can add to this at the end or kind of correct me as I go through. So you would use various teaching methods. So you're using audio visual and kinesthetic mm -hmm. methods to 
to tell your students what's going on, show them, etc. Um, novelty. So implementing newer movements or yeah, I guess we're mostly speaking to movement in that respect, right? Mm-hmm. And even bringing their yeah. attention to something different in a familiar shape. Um, one thing we did just the other day with yeah. my students is we were in a high lunge and I just had them experiment with lifting the the big toe of the front foot off the floor while keeping the rest of the toes on the floor. And so it's a really simple thing, but it just creates that like, it kind of like sparks a light of possibility in the brain. And that's really what we're playing with there. Yeah. Okay. That's a perfect example. So it doesn't have to be like five to 10 minutes of like totally new movement things that no one else has ever experienced. And Mm -hmm. like everyone takes, you can, you can introduce something new and it doesn't have to be brand brand new to everyone. Like people like to repeat things to be able to eventually learn Mm -hmm. them. So yeah, novelty somewhere in the class. Um, You do a lot of teaching to being present and being aware. So kind of commonly coming back to to that thread of like being in in the moment um and the novelty helps with that as Mm -hmm. well and uh, integrating social engagement in some way yes not always but but yeah that can be Mm -hmm. useful cool was there anything else you wanted to add to that anything other things that you noticed that kind of you use tools in your classes Mm. I think one thing that I do a lot with my students and and this is a common thing we do as yoga teachers but again it's always nice to do it with intention and to really be aware of it um of the possibilities it carries but sometimes when we're in a challenging pose and again this is like for the students who love you know the power of vinyasa and the challenge they can be in that challenging pose and what we can introduce is a sense of self-awareness of how do I respond when I'm being challenged? Am I clenching my jaw? Am I frowning? Am I holding my breath? Um, Is there, you know, a loud voice in my head that's going, ah, and can I just remind that voice that, you know what, I can actually ignore her and go to child's pose anytime I want. And so I actually literally say that to my students. Um, And it just, Mm, just bringing their attention to how we respond to stress. Um, And usually just knowing that enables them to like, you know, unhinge the jaw, go back to the breath, laugh at, you know, the humor of whatever narrative is going on in their head. Um, so that's one tool that I use a lot. I think it's really powerful and really effective. And and especially when students come in after, uh, you know, come up to me after class and say things like, you know, these experiences make us better people. I think that reminds me that what mm-hmm. we do on the mat is really just the the preparation for the real practice which begins when we step off the mat and carry all of that into our lives yeah I love that that's that's hugely important to create that link that's the I mean it's the hardest place to do practice mindfulness awareness and presence is in the Mm day-to-day and just listening to your body like you said that give the example of being in the more vigorous pose and kind of what do you need do you just need to relax a couple muscles in your face do you need to stop doing it altogether um, I think all of us struggle with these decisions like on a daily basis. Yesterday it was, I was like, I really want to go outside and go for a walk, but I was tired. Like I was, I was really tired. Like I was looking at my phone and I was, my eyes were fluttering. I was almost falling asleep, but I was telling myself, if you go and get some sunlight, you'll feel better. But I'd been out in the sun all day. Mm-hmm. So I was like going back and forth. Like what, like, what do you really need? Like, what do you really need? And I was having the hardest time, like figuring it out, like, do I just let myself rest or do, do I just go for a gentle, slow walk? And I, 
like kind of did a little bit of both. But yeah, it's very difficult. You need a lot of practice to really like tune into what you truly need. So practicing it in a, in a space with a teacher guiding you is mm-hmm. so helpful. Um, Sandy, did you have anything else that you wanted to ask without like blowing this out into a five-hour conversation? <laughs> I think we could do like so many. No, no. Yeah. It's, I think I'm good so far. I think you did like a really good summary of those like basics. Like, I guess they're almost like basic principles of teaching and practicing um for this neuroplasticity um i'm just like i'm just excited to hit my mat and uh try some new things awesome. yeah really nice <laughs> thanks for the inspiration yeah thanks for having me yeah this and it's, i think fun. it's helpful just yeah just like teaching your students basically that when you learn new things you are working with neuroplasticity I think that in and of itself is something that people Mm -hmm. forget and like learning is hard but you are doing it is doing work like up in your brain from your Mm -hmm. brain down to like the cells in your fingers everything is connected Mm -hmm. um, and that might get people a little more excited to try new Mm -hmm. things yeah I'm just so excited to like bust out some really bad jokes of like old dog new tricks you know yeah (laughs) yeah it's gonna be it's gonna get way corny up in my classes very soon um but yeah i think that's i think that's a wrap thank you so much aisha we would love to have you back um because i think i think we have certain things that i would actually love to talk more about sure Um, i'd love that but yeah when when the time comes (laughs) sounds good thank you for having me and we will yeah We'll post to, or we'll we'll post in our show notes. Um, you wrote an article. I haven't reviewed it yet, but we'll post to that if people want to read that. I don't know how related it is, but we'll just post to it so people can get to know you a little bit better. Mm-hmm. Um, and then any of your social media stuff or website or anything you have, we'll give everyone as much information as we have on you, so they can now find you. You can't hide. <laughs> You're now famous. You're famous for like the 20 people that listen to this podcast. Yay. <laughs> All right, guys. Okay, well, we'll talk to you guys later. Bye. Bye.